You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you? U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed, I said this unleashing was a, once in a, generation a global vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Ramesh Ganaharati, and with me today is Miraji Mohammed, a PhD researcher at Dublin City University, with whom I will discuss violent extremism in Kenya. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via Dublin LPR. So, Miraji, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ramesh. Thank you so much for having me around. Like, uh, I've been following up on the work of Dublin Learn Politics Review for a while. So I was really delighted to be invited to take part in talking about violent extremism in Kenya. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking your time to talk with our audience. So could you just start by briefly introducing what your research is about? Yeah, sure. Um, So my research examines how different actors in Kenya that take part in the countering or preventing violent extremism agenda understand and interpret the concept of radicalization. So when I talk about uh, different actors, I'm sort of looking at, say, policymakers, political elites in other capacities. I'm also looking at, say, um, civil society organizations, personnel, so as practitioners in the area of uh, preventing and countering violent extremism. How do they translate this particular concept? And at the same time, I'm bringing in beneficiaries, which are most of the time, not just in Kenya, but in so many countries, happen to be young people. So CVE and PVE are programs specifically designed to target young people. So I also get their voices in this particular research to see what does this concept mean to them and what are their daily experiences uh, with CVE and also counterterrorism more broadly. So CVE, for the benefit of our audience, would be countering violent extremism, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, but most of the time you would see it as P stroke CVE, which means preventing stroke countering violent extremism. So they are sometimes conflated, even though I think uh, depending on the implementing actor, they could as well be two different things. Yeah. Okay. So so going into the case study of Kenya, what mm-hmm. are these mm-hmm threats that Kenya is facing? What are these extremist threats that Kenya is facing? Okay, so if you specifically use the keyword extremist, then of course, like uh, if you look at our strategies and policies for say counterterrorism, you're going to see that uh, the greatest extremist threat to Kenya at the moment is violent extremism, specifically uh, related to Islamist terrorism, right? But at the same time, you find that to understand this idea of Islamist terrorism, and I use that with a lot of reflection. So in quotes, in the context of Kenya, you need to understand it within the broader historical and uh, social conditions in that particular country. So you find that there are so many other different types of conflicts that at different times we've looked at them in a different way. And now that we have this particular language on extremism, terrorism, and radicalization, It's some of those conflicts that now are being labeled with these particular new concepts. So a very good example of threats that we've had historically in Kenya, we've had electoral related conflicts. And a very good example um, is the post-election violence that was witnessed in Kenya in uh, 2007, 2008. But before that, we also had clashes in 1992, just after the introduction of multi-party politics. We also had clashes in 1997. 
And these particular clashes, they should also be understood in the context of ethnic mobilization, right? So the political uh, model of Kenya, you find that to get electoral seats, elites are very likely to use ethnicity as a beginning chip. So you get people from your own ethnicity to vote for you or you form ethnic alliances so that you can have greater numbers in comparison to, your, to, uh, to the opposition or in comparison to other candidates. So you find that we have such electoral related politics which are linked to ethnic politics. And then we also have a very interesting kind of threat which is linked to subnationalism in different regions. And this basically originates from Kenya's colonial history. So taking for instance, the example of just one region that my research focuses on, my research looks at Mombasa and uh, Mombasa is found in the South of Kenya. And you find that uh, Mombasa was occupied by different racial and um, religious groups at different points in its history, right? We had the Portuguese, we had the Omani Arabs, and then at some point we had the British Empire also uh, establishing itself in Mombasa. So with these particular occupations and colonizations, different institutions and systems were formed, right? And different identities were made salient in comparison to others. So then you find that people would also engage in conflict uh, based on the idea that I'm a native, you are not, you are a non-native. So for instance, people that are local to Mombasa would be ethnicities, such as the Mijikenda and the Arabs and Arab communities, even though they came way later. But when you go to that region specifically, the Mijikenda are very likely to tell you that, you know what, the Arabs were also not originally from here. They just came in way later. So you find that there is also conflicts related to these subnationalisms. And then the other type of uh, threat that is also being witnessed in Kenya is related to competition for resources. So we have resource-based conflicts, and these are actually uh, prominent in different parts of the countries. You can see them in pastoralist communities where they have conflicts related to grazing areas and pasture and water and the likes. And other issues that um, Kenya also faces include human trafficking, trafficking in, in arms and small weapons, and also um, the entire region and in terms of the stability and the conflicts happening in neighboring countries, such as, for instance, Somalia, cross-border conflicts, for instance, with um, in Sudan and such countries. So you find all these are actually threats that Kenya faces, some internal, some external, but at the same time, very related to the dynamics of that particular country and the region at large. That's indeed very interesting to see that there are so many different threats. And just to summarize for our audience, the ones you mentioned, which include, of course, terrorism, mm -hmm. but also, of course, subnational politics related to ethnic identity or religious mm -hmm. identity. But also, of course, as you said, resource-based conflict is also increasing, not just in Kenya, across I mean, the whole world, actually. So in that sense, it's, it's a lot of both very local issues, but also a lot of transnational issues and cross-border issues, as you just mentioned. Absolutely, absolutely. So how do this multitude of very different threats actually impact the political agenda of Kenya? Because my initial assumption is that, well, because they're so different, you need to treat them differently. Okay, so I think uh, it really depends, just like you said, they do have an impact on the political agenda. And it depends with uh, the interest of the particular elites at a given point in time, right? So 
naming a conflict in a certain way might be interesting to someone because they intend to gain something out of that, right? So if you, if, if you for instance, uh, go back to the history of Kenya, there used to be a group that was called Mungiki, and it mainly operated in the central region of Kenya. And the group is mostly listed as an ethno-ideological-based violent group, right? But this same group, I think if it existed in the contemporary times, it could have also been labeled a violent organization or a terrorist organization, depending on who is in power and what interests they're pushing for. So in the same way, you would want to ask yourself, Somalia has been undergoing a civil war for a very long time, right? But how come Kenya felt the need to intervene only in 2011? And how come it's only in 2011 that we realized there's a group called Al-Shabaab in Somalia even though the group had already been existing since I think uh, 2008 or so, yeah? So I think it, it really depends with what someone stands to gain politically. They're likely to look at one conflict in a certain way and not in another way. At the same time, I think we're all human beings and we do have our own interests and we sort of um, bring in these subjectivities when we want to look at something. So you can't really, um, um, it's very difficult to say that I'm going to name this based on this criteria, which is completely objective. Like I think it, it's very hard to attain that level of objectivity. So we name them depending on what interest we have, which also determines the kind of uh, responses that we are going to direct to these particular threats. Okay, so then in its response, so maybe mm -hmm. you could give an example of a case of how did Kenya, the political institution or political elite of Kenya respond to a violent a case of violent extremism. Yeah, so um, as I said again, um, if you look at Kenya right now, we find that Kenya continues to um, assume a very central role in East Africa on issues related to peace, security. But at the same time, taking the example, for instance, of violent extremism or the contemporary idea of what terrorism is, you find that Kenya's counterterrorism architecture has really expanded from, say, at a point in time, when Kenya supported different initiatives, but more as a silent partner, you know, like not wanting to be seen that you're taking this particular position and not this, and, and not this position. But now it has um, clearly and openly sided. So you see that, for instance, uh, if you look at the current um, intervention in Somalia, that initially began with the Kenya Defense Forces intervening in Somalia, of course, uh, together with the Somalia security forces. So it wasn't just Kenya going in without Somalia's permission, but no, Somalia knew and actually invited Kenya in. But you find that how Kenya responded to this, this is a security operation, right? So the problem has been identified to be violent extremism and they decided the only way to stop this type of extremism is to actually be there and try to push back Al-Shabaab to recover the territory that they have gained, right? But at the same time, there are also other examples that Kenya pursued to deal with the emerging threat of violent extremism. And this include uh, improving institutional capacities. For instance, uh, Kenya developed uh, several legislations that are supposed to reduce the threat of conflict, but also to prevent money laundering and the likes and terrorism financing. And apart from legislation, we also um, developed institutions that in the past we did not have. 
And a good example is the Anti-Terrorism Police Unit and the National Counterterrorism Center of Kenya. These are two specific institutions that did not exist in the past. But now we have specific institutions that are tasked with this particular mandate. And apart from this, we've also had um, Kenya improve or enhance its own uh, military and police surveilling capabilities through training and also the purchase of high technology equipment. These are just few examples when you look at institutional capacities, but there are other approaches. If you followed up from 2015, there was a lot of conversation regarding the closure of the Dab refugee camp. And this is a refugee, it's, I think, one of the biggest refugee camps in the world, right? And, and you realize that the idea of closing the Dab refugee camp originates from our understanding of what violent extremism is and connecting this violent extremism as a threat emanating from the people living in this particular camp. So that's also another example. And of course, there was a lot of criticisms based on, on these particular uh, responses and specifically security operations. So Kenya also tried to sort of from 2016 to move towards what they would term softer approaches. And you see that in this particular period, we've seen the adoption of a national countering violent extremism strategy, something that Kenya did not have in the past. And in this particular strategy, from 2010, Kenya adopted a new constitution and our form of governance changed to now we have devolved structures. So we have the central government, but we also have devolved government. So you find that every particular region in this particular strategy was mandated to come up with an action plan detailing how they were going to implement these particular policies. So people look at this particular approach as more soft in the sense that its implementation is not just restricted to security and military institutions and personnel, but it also tries to bring in communities. So mm -hmm. can communities do to mitigate this particular threat? What can communities do to stop young people from adopting violent ideologies? And then what can the private stakeholders do? And, and what can the civil society do? So it's based on this idea of forming partnership, partnerships in order to reduce the threat of terrorism in Kenya. Yeah. That sounds very interesting. And it's great to see that Kenya has been adopting it from a multi-dimensional approach to tackle violent extremism and terrorism and all these other security-related threats yeah, that exist. And then what I want to know is, can us in Europe learn something from this? Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, we always learn from each other. I think even the mistakes that people make can be learning points for other people that they don't end up committing the same mistakes in their own approaches. And I think what we need to ask ourselves is, what do we mean by these soft approaches? Because I think you can have a very well-thought policy document that talks about partnerships, theoretically, but if practically you're not engaging these people, then it completely defeats the purpose, right? And when, when we look at these softer approaches, we also need to remember that this whole idea of countering and preventing violent extremism came due to the criticisms that had been leveled against the war on terror, specifically counterterrorism, right? And the damage that it caused in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, and the likes. And now you find more countries are trying to adopt more softer approaches termed winning the hearts and minds. But then again, 
the question still remains, is it just a rhetoric or are we actually doing it in practical? And these soft approaches, are they not sort of trying to shift attention away from, for instance, issues that have been identified in Kenya by several, several reports as being the main drivers of conflict? Because if you look at the issue of historical injustices, and all those clashes that we've had in Kenya at different periods since Kenya's independence in December 1963, there have been several reports. Just to name a few, we had the Akuwumi Commission report or the Commission of Ethnic Clashes report, and then we had the Commission of Inquiry into the Illegal and Irregular Allocation of Public Land, and then we have the Commission of Inquiry on Post-Election Violence. And then very recently, we had a report that actually came out called the Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission report that looked into the causes of conflict in Kenya from independence in December 1963 to February 2008. And you actually found that the things that they identified and said that these were the main drivers of violence, including, for instance, the fact that there's an increasing problem of a growing population of poor unemployed young people, right? who join gang organizations or, or even militia groups. And you find that these same gangs or militia groups are the gangs that are used during the election period by different politicians to intimidate opposing candidates, right? So then we get to use these young people when we need them, and then you just completely dump the group. So the group just goes underground or it goes into operation at the very local level. So this was identified as one of the drivers of conflict in Kenya. And the other issue was, there's a very big land question in Kenya, but I think it's not just in Kenya. It might exist in other countries that were also colonized because land was seized by the empire and then uh, policies came into place and you had to prove that you actually own that particular land and people did not have proper documentation during those times. So you find that their historical grievances related to land in Kenya. But then these do not feature anywhere in the policies that we now see, like the softer approaches to CVE, right? There's very little being mentioned about the issue of unemployment. There's very little being mentioned in terms of how do we go from now to address these particular historical injustices related to land? And also how do we address the issue of corruption, impunity and the use of excessive force by the police, because these are issues that feature in all those existing reports. So it sort of um, makes you question these particular soft approaches. What do they mean by soft? Is it to divert the attention of people from these form of abuses, impunity and inequalities to the rhetoric that we should be one, we should be united? Or does it actually help us address the real issues that people have identified? I think the civil society, and it's doing really great work in this particular area of preventing and countering violent extremism, but there's a danger that if the pre-existing issues have not been addressed, that the civil society could also be regarded as a mouthpiece of the state, right? People could assume that, oh, so now you're telling us that this is what we're going to focus on when we've told you several times that this is the actual problem. So you find that at the moment, there's a lot of mistrust between security forces and the people, but with the ongoing trend 
if say the historical injustices do not get addressed, this mistrust will also be extended to the civil society. Because by, uh, by choosing to sort of turn a blind eye on say uh, the abuses, it sort of communicates a different message to the people. And I think that that's the most important thing if we are trying to prevent violent extremism, we really need to address the problems that the people have actually identified and not just gloss them over or just scratch the surface. So I think the Europe can actually learn this particular thing from Kenya. And the other interesting thing that Europe can also learn is by looking at Kenya as a case study, you get to actually see how the problem of extremism has been decontextualized, right? Because if there is no mention of the historical and social conditions that gave rise to this problem, but our only conception is the Western or the Eurocentric idea of terrorism as linked to Islam, a discourse that Kenya has really, really uprooted and applied it in its own context, this is the problem. Terrorism is experienced differently in different areas. And if we are looking at the case of Kenya, we need to be aware of the local circumstances and how these local circumstances get to define what is terrorism in this particular area, but an issue of copy and, and paste, I think it, um, it becomes, it causes more problems than there initially were, or instead of uh, providing solutions to the problem, it actually creates other problems. Like for instance, if you look at my encyclopedia entry, I actually talk about how implementation of counterterrorism in specific areas can be seen to have resulted into the formation of these particular youth gangs. And you see them growing from being very few in, the, in 2010 to over 100 at the moment. So this is one of the problems. The moment you lift discourse from one area to the, to the other and completely not factor in the local circumstances, this is always bound to happen. Yeah, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really good learning point. And also the idea that I think so many people have talked about this already, that military interventions don't really work. They're a very short-term solution to sort of halting the violence. But in the long term, we need measures which are proactive and not reactive. So we need measures that are designed to address deeper issues instead of just uh, scratching the surface a common uh, civil society person in Kenya said, we need to stop these cosmetic measures, you know? We can't just sort of gloss over the problem. We need to go to the root cause of the problem and then see where we take it from there. Okay, that's a lot of information that you've given us in the last uh, 25 minutes. And I would say that we can also recommend our listeners, if they're interested reading further on this to your encyclopedia entry at the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Peace and Conflict Studies, which we will put a link in our post. So on that note, I would like to thank Miraji for taking her time to share her research with us. And to our listeners, again, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at DublinLPR or on our website, dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai, and Galway's Florida FM. Comments, questions, and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie. This is Ramesh Ganoharati, and I wish you a pleasant day. Mm-hmm.